them away, which is great news. And hopefully you're finding use of your Bible. Um, <clears throat> the title of the message this morning is An Invitation to Transformation. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, before I do, I want to make one last note. Uh, we do have some friends that work at Bayside Church in Sacramento, and they have contacted us, and a couple individuals from Bayside have donated some funds to our church, uh, basically for snow relief. So uh, what we have available uh, is a, a, a chunk of funds that our deacons can divvy out uh, to help with snow removal if you're, if you're still in that boat. If you're still removing snow at this point, uh, it's probably because you need help. So please don't hesitate to ask. But also we recognize that some of you probably need some repairs, uh, and you may need help with that too. Uh, and we know how weird that is with insurance in this area and all of that. Uh, how many of you have had your insurance canceled in the last three years at some point? Oh, you're lying. Most of you have. I know. Or, or you don't own a home. <laughs> um, mine just, uh, they just dropped me recently. They're going to drop me in June. So I'm, gonna, I'm on the search for a new one. But um, if you know somebody, just let us know. Reach out to us. Uh, our deacons, Andy Finch, uh, helps oversee that. There's a little board out there. Uh, there's a number on there, but let us know. If you know someone that needs some help, uh, needs some assistance, we, we have uh, the availability to do that. Uh, if you want to see just a little bit of what the snow can do, Mavis, Mavis here has a wonderful picture uh, of the side of her house, which is pretty much almost completely gone. Uh, and, um, but she doesn't even notice. She didn't even know, right? You, you, don't even, you can't even tell, right? Living the dream. Living the dream of Tahoe Donner. We knew you could do it. So, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> An invitation to transformation. I, I, want to, um, I want you to understand something. Brad alluded to it in the video. A majority of the Gospels, a good chunk of the Gospels, is dedicated to these last seven days. The last seven days of Jesus' life, which they call the Passion. And they call it the Passion in part because this is Christ's Passion. I've been reading some really interesting things on how if we allow ourselves to mourn, if we allow ourselves to, to weep, the Bible says weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. When we understand that we can go low, scientists are just now discovering that when you allow yourself to, to go low, it, it basically puts you in what they would call a, a negative dopamine state. But once you go low and you enter into that negative space, your dopamine is more apt to be increased by the, just the general joys of the world, like a sunset or a sunrise. Jesus literally tells us in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus knew what scientists are just now discovering. If I go low and I sacrifice myself and I give myself, and I go through this suffering, on the back end will be a tremendous amount of joy. That's why we call this the Passion Week. Christ's passion marched towards the cross. And everything in the Gospels is to get us to this point. Everything in the Old Testament is to get us to this point. And if you will recognize, if you will remember, as we've gone through the narrative of Jesus' life, anytime Jesus has done anything that is miraculous, right, Jesus heals a leper. Jesus causes someone who's never walked before to walk. Jesus brings sight to those who are blind. Jesus continually brings comfort. And in places we see 
this Christ, this, this individual who, who is the Messiah, even calms nature itself. As he walks on the water and he calms the ocean and he calms the sea, we see that Jesus truly is something spectacular, someone that is very special. And yet every single time that Jesus goes about doing these particular miracles or anytime he does something that's impactful, his message afterwards is always really intriguing. You remember his message? Don't tell anybody. In fact, anytime someone says, you're the Messiah, Jesus almost seems to be detracting that. I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to let you go there yet. In fact, one of the best miracles in the Bible, which... (laughs) kind of messes with our theology a little bit. Some of you may know what I mean is his first miracle. It happens to be at a wedding, right? And, and his mom comes to him and says, Jesus, we've ran out of alcohol. We need a party. There's no more wine. And Jesus, if you remember, what does he say to his mom? My time's not come. No more alcohol for you. <laughs> and yet we know as he progressed, he he then produces wine, not that the people would be drunk, but that their joy would be made full. And people rejoice because the wine, they don't know Jesus has turned that water into wine, but it's the best wine anyone's ever had. This stuff tastes amazing. This is great. You save the best for last. And yet Jesus is unwilling to let people go where they automatically want to go especially the the Hebrew people, God's chosen Jewish people. Because the Jews have been waiting for a Messiah for hundreds of years. Everything in Scripture is pointing towards this fact and reality that God is going to liberate his people from bondage. Because if any group of people has ever been under great bondage and great persecution, no one has been persecuted like the Jews. Their history is just full of slavery and bondage. Even though God has said to his people, there's a land for you. There's a promised land for you that you will inherit. That's going to be yours one day. Everything in the Old Testament points towards the fact that there will be a king of kings. Now, as we pick up this particular story, before we stand and read together, I want us to read some context and go back to chapter 20 of Matthew. And look at what happens near the, the, the beginning of this entryway. So again, remember, everything is, it has been building towards Jesus, moving towards Jerusalem. The statement that we would use is, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. That's like to say, right, you, you pull up on your Google phone and you go, I'm going to Sacramento. And you put in to your GPS Sacramento and it takes you there. He has on a mission to get to the destination that is the cross. And as he is going towards Jerusalem, we find this in verse 29 of chapter 20 in the Gospel of Matthew. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them, be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, 
let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Now, I think it's interesting. You know, I mean, one of the things that, again, I love about the Bible and why I encourage people to read it is there are so many beautiful things that are hidden within the text and, and, and mentioned here that maybe we don't see at first. I mean, take, take the, the reality that Jesus asks them a question, and I think it's the same question he's asking the crowd. It's the same question he's asking you this morning. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want the Lord to do for you? What is it that you're hoping that this divine message that some of you hear almost every single week, that some of you are seeking for in Scripture, what is it that you want from Jesus? Ask the question right now in the moment. What is it that you want from God? What is your desire? What is your hope? Jesus is asking the question, and the reason that we have to ask the question why he's asking the question is because do you think it is quite obvious why they're asking for the Lord? What do they want? They want to see. I mean, that's plain as day. And yet Jesus asks. He wants to hear it from their voice. He wants to hear what it is that, that, that they want a solution to. They are blind and they want to see. And hopefully this morning when I ask you the question, what do you want from Jesus, you answer the same way that these men do. I want to see the Lord. It's not enough to hear about him. It's not enough to know that he exists out there. It's not enough to be a Gnostic that, that you're agnostic, that you believe that God exists, but he doesn't really care about humanity. You want to know him, hopefully. Hopefully you're here because you want to see a clearer picture of who Jesus is, what this Messiah is all about, and what he has come for. And, and here's why this is also important in context. Remember I told you that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, has been deflecting his identity? This is the first time in Matthew where Jesus doesn't deflect. And notice what the blind men say of Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on us. That word son of David is so important. By them invoking this word son of David, they are literally telling and saying of Jesus, you are the Messiah. King David, from King David would come the king of kings, the Messiah. Through his lineage would come the Messiah. These blind men, though they cannot see Jesus physically, something in their hearts have been opened. For some reason that we don't know, they know this is the son of David. This is the king of kings. This is the one who deserves our worship. And the reason the crowd say, shh, is because they know it's heresy to say that. Don't say that out loud. He hasn't been saying. But notice, they now know. It's being mentioned in the gospel. This is who Jesus is. Eyes should be opened that Jesus is the king of kings. Amen? Amen. Jesus is God. And as he is moving into this place in chapter 21, he is forcing the issue. By him not only accepting the title Son of David, but also by him walking in what we call the triumphal entry, he is forcing the issue that people either have to crown him or they will have to kill him. And so together, let us stand in honor of these holy words in chapter 21, and let's read the rest of the story starting in verse 1. Please stand with me. And if you're new and you're like, oh my gosh, he's making me stand, it, it's because we seriously honor God's word. And by standing, it gives us an opportunity to place our physical bodies where we know we want our souls to be. 
Lord, speak to us, and may we obey. Verse 1, 21 of Matthew. Now when they drew to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, you, coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, put them put them on their cloaks, and they sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees. They spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, and they followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna, which means save, I pray, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when they entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus. <laughs> from Nazareth of Galilee. Lord, these are your words. They are true and trustworthy in the church of Jesus Christ said. Amen. Please take a seat. Here's first observation, first point. As we move towards the reality that Jesus, as he enters into Jerusalem, is inviting people into his new kingdom that he is establishing. What Jesus has just done by directing his disciples to go get this donkey is really quite incredible. The Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark, which we just went through, it doesn't waste a whole lot of time getting to the point. Right? It's, it's not like the Lord of the Rings. How many of you have actually read the Lord of the Rings? Okay, a few of you. So, so if, you, if you're uh, uh, someone who enjoys the Lord of the Rings, I remember I made the decision after the first movie came out to be like, I'm going to go read the Lord of the Rings. So I went and I got... You know, the classic edition, nice big thing, beautiful ornate. And I took it home and I began to read The Lord of the Rings. And it didn't take long for me to realize, dear Lord, Mr. Tolkien, you have put a lot of detail in this book. Right? I mean, I, I remember at one point, like, like, dude, I'm 20 pages of reading of, of the hobbits walking through the flowery field. And I, I get it. I get the detail. He is so detailed in that book that if all you get... Uh, if your only view of the Lord of the Rings is from the movies, you're missing, on, you're missing out on so many details. And the Gospels are unlike that. They are, they, they're quick. They get to the point. And anytime that you start reading the text and you see that there's certain things that seem to be taking a little bit more time than normal, you should take note of it. And what do I mean by that? Well, in this particular chapter, there are six verses. If that's a good chunk that are dedicated to the description of Jesus telling the disciples to go get this donkey. He tells them exactly what to do. Take note of where he is. He's not yet in Jerusalem. He's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's making his way to Jerusalem to die. And in this particular place, we're told that he is at Bethphage, which is right next to Bethany. And then he mentions the Mount of Olive, Olives in its proximity. This is important because the Mount of Olives is connected to the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament, when we talk about the Messiah, it has to do with the Mount of Olives. 
It literally tells us that as Jesus ascended, so he will return. Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives, and he will descend on the Mount of Olives. Jesus taught the, on the Mount of Olives. It's an important place, even in the Old Testament. It tells us of the king. So he's moving towards Jerusalem, and Bethphage here in this little community near Bethany, he's well known in Bethany. Do you know why he's well known in Bethany? Who lived in Bethany? Lazarus lived in Bethany. So did Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha. Everybody knew Jesus in this place, yeah? I mean, if you raise someone from the dead, that's a good way to get your popularity up. He went viral, y'all. Right, that message of, he, did you hear what Jesus did? Everybody knew. Jesus actually spent an incredible amount of time in this little place, this little town. And so take this for note, that, that everybody knew who Jesus was, but Jesus also knew probably everybody. He knew where the animals were. He knew where the donkeys were. And so he tells them, you're going to go here. There's where the donkey's going to be. It's like those of you who call Truckee full-time. It'd be no different than someone saying, hey, just go down to the old coffee and down there and tell the owner that Jesse has need of some bacon. And they'll laugh at you. <laughs> Jesus is communicating that he is in control as king. Six verses dedicated. He knows exactly what is happening and what's going on. The people know. And, and here's the thing. Jesus is calling for the donkey, yes. But he's calling for something more. Take a look, if you will, in the second half. Look at... A little after verse, I think it's in verse 9. And the crowds went before him, and they followed him. But we know at this particular time that the city was abuzz. Two and a half million individuals come into Jerusalem every year at this time to sacrifice animals for the Passover. Now, this particular week in the passion for us as a church has been pretty incredible. We, we have our team here who loves you and serves you and cares about our church. They, they have really just upped the ante this year for Easter. So Friday, we had a Passover feast in this room. And Zach and Laura and Connie, they, they all did an amazing job. And you can see on my right, there are some doorposts that represent Passover and the cross. And at the end of the night, after we celebrated Passover together, that day when Jesus, when God passed over uh, the, the firstborn of the Hebrews, they celebrate that exodus. And so that all points to Jesus getting us out of, exiting us out of our own sin. And so on Friday, they, we had these up, and the kids and, and the adults were able to paint red on them just as they would have done Jesus' blood on my left and on the doorpost on my right. And today's Palm Sunday, and we're launching all of these videos, one for every week uh, that we've put together for you to grow in your faith this week. And then we've got Good Friday which will be a somber service. We'll take communion together. And then you have Saturday. We won't gather, but Saturday is pregnant with possibilities that God can come back. And then Sunday, we celebrate that he did come back and he and he alone defeats death and that he is the prototype for us, the first of all creation, that because Jesus overcame death, you overcome death too. Hallelujah. Death, Paul says, is just a bee sting. That's what he says of death, right? For those of us who come to Christ, he says, oh, death, where is your sting? It's nothing. It's like a little teeny bee. Now, if you're allergic to bees, the analogy doesn't work so well, <laughs> but you get the point. 
Jesus is sharing, I'm in control. Even though he's marching to his death, everything is being orchestrated by the Messiah. Even the donkey. Again, imagine the confusion of the disciples. Finally, finally, all the way up into this place, the disciples have been wanting Jesus to declare that he is going to be the militant Messiah that they think he's going to be. And that this march, this particular march into Jerusalem for them, praise God for it, I'm sure they're thinking in their mind. Jesus is finally marching into Jerusalem to do what? To be king and overthrow the Romans. In their minds, they're thinking, finally, our liberation has come. Finally, Jesus is going to be the soldier that we need him to be. And yet Jesus still is trying to send them a message of his kingship. Because what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't do what every other soldier, every other king, every other militant individual would do before going into a city to conquer it. They don't ride a donkey, y'all. They ride a steed. They ride a horse. My grandfather uh, raised horses in Texas. True story. And I have always been deathly afraid of horses. Because anything that big should not be ridden. One time I was petting one of the horses and I got near it. You know, I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll try this out. It is one of God's creatures. And I started rubbing his head and he kind of started rubbing in there. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe not so bad. And then that stupid horse stuck his entire face in my torso and flung me like I was nothing all the way across. And I was like, dude, forget this. Horses are dumb. He knew. He knew. That stupid thing knew what I was doing. He was like, I'll trick him. Oh, you think I'm nice. Yeah! (laughs) Instead of a horse, Jesus rides a donkey. Anybody knows this. The disciples knew this, and I'm sure the irony is not lost in their minds. I'm sure they're thinking inside of their minds. Jesus is marching into Rome. He's finally going to be king, but if he rides this donkey, he's going to be slaughtered. To ride a donkey is to die. I'm sure in their minds they're thinking he's got to be mistaken, but here is the thing. To ride a donkey as a king, some would say, oh, that doesn't happen, but it does. It actually happens. It's something historically that that Jesus is trying to communicate. Kings would ride donkeys, but they would only ride them after they conquered their enemies. It's a sign of peace, tranquility, unity, and that the battle's done. Jesus is already showing us, just as we sang earlier, the battle is won. I'm fighting a battle, and my victory is already secure. Jesus is letting his disciples know I'm going to overthrow Rome, but it's going to be the Rome in your heart. And I am going to be victorious, and I'm going to give you peace. And it's going to be the kind of peace that you've never experienced before. Will you give Jesus control? Will you allow him to plan your life? I mean, come on, my friends. I'm, I'm 44 years old. I know I'm not old, and I know I'm not young. But I'm right at that age that I know enough of life to say not everything goes the way that you want it to and not everything goes according to plan. Some of us are sitting here and go, I can't believe what I've done with my life. I've made a mess of my life. And the good news is, is that Jesus is the one who's orchestrating your life. Maybe it doesn't make sense. Just like the donkey doesn't make sense. But just because you can't make the connection doesn't mean that there's not a good reason for it, yeah? 
Will you give him complete control or will you walk with an illusion of control? I mean, one of the things that I've been wrestling through in my own ministry, you know, one of the things that I have to deal with on a regular basis is people who are sick, people who are dying, and people who die. And working and living with and walking with family in our church when a loved one has passed away. It's incredibly difficult. But one of the things that I've been thinking through is, what does it look like for a Christian to die well? What what does it look like for us to truly know that Jesus is king, he's truly in control, and even though he's making my life go not according to plan, it's still a good plan. I would have never chosen Truckee for myself. I wouldn't have. My whole life, as silly as it sounds, up until I married Allie, I only dated blondes. I know it sounds stupid and superficial, but that's what I was. The only woman I've ever been with that is brunette is Allie. Because God knew blondes are trouble. No offense, Rebecca. (laughs) Jesus is always in charge. We've got six verses to show us that he's orchestrating it. He's putting it together. He's making the move. But he's, again, remember I mentioned, this is my second point, that not only that we've got to let him be in charge, but as we allow him to be in charge, we have to recognize that there is no in-between with Jesus. He's making it really clear by what he's doing. He's riding in this donkey, and and he's allowing here, even if you notice, the crowds. Remember, the blind men were the first one to say it. You're son of David. Now the crowds, which are fickle, because here they cry, Hosanna, Lord, save, I pray, but later they will cry, crucify him. But even the crowds here say, son of David. Now is this moment that Jesus is, is... pressing and revealing who he is. No in-between. He is literally communicating to everyone, including everyone in this room. You either will crown me or you will kill me. One great author says of the Gospels, for instance, which is a pretty, pretty real statement to make, they are either the Gospels, the written Gospels which we're reading, he says they are either works of madness or they're a blinding revelation. But there is no in-between. In fact, one of the churches in Revelation, some of you are aware of this, the church of Laodicea, Jesus literally comes to them and says, I know your works. I know that you do good things. However, he says, I have this against you. You're not hot and you're not cold. And I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold, but because you are lukewarm, you're not hot or you're not cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, he says. But I mean, you're all aware of this. Like, hot pizza is good. Cold pizza is good. Lukewarm pizza, mm. spit it out your mouth. Anyone have a lukewarm soda? Yeah, that reaction. All of you literally just gave an audible, Because it's not good. And this is what Jesus is saying. If, if you are going to have any power, if you are going to have forgiveness, if you're going to know who I am, you must not be in between. 
you must release yourself to me completely. The reality is some people love Jesus as a consultant. Some people love Jesus to partner with them. Some people love Jesus as a counselor. But what Jesus is saying is, it's not enough for me to be liked. I must be loved. Jesus is not just some other rabbi. His declarations are too radical. His statements are too much for most of the world to handle. He says, I and I alone am king. I and I alone am worthy of worship. What will you do with your life? You know what doesn't work? Partying on a Saturday and coming to church on a Sunday. It doesn't work. It's not sustainable. I did it in college. I know. It doesn't work. Because Jesus is not a God who allows you to just stay in your filth. Yes, to come as you are. Amen to that, right? We want to be a church that invites everyone and everybody. Come as you are. Come as you are. But he's not going to keep you that way. He's not content to keep you that way. Remember again the song we sang? He turns graves into gardens. Maybe you came this morning and you feel like death. You feel depressed and you feel heavy. The good news is Jesus is inviting you to transformation this morning. He's inviting you to be a new creature and a new creation, not based off your own good works, but based off of his. Because even though he's calling us to crown him as king, can we all be really, really open about something? How many of you have done that perfectly? I'm not going to raise my hand. Right? Following Christ and making him king is giving as much of yourself as you are aware of to as much of Jesus that you know in that moment. Jesus is asking you to follow him and to make him king, not in perfection, but with what you know. And some of you just got to start somewhere by making him king. The Lord may be telling you this morning, hey, you know what? It's time to read your Bible every day. It's time to pray every day. Maybe it's time to fast. You know, the Bible says fast to get rid of bondage and and to get rid of sin do that to remember that you don't live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of god because there is no power for us as christians if we don't make him king your power comes from knowing this humble christ riding this donkey it comes by submitting to this individual who is riding a beast of burden a beast that is meant for servants Jesus is not only declaring I'm king, he's still declaring I came to serve you and not to be served. How incredible is this king that we worship? There's a story in the book of Acts. Some of you might remember it in chapter 19. It's a fun little story. I think it's a fun story. I know I find humor in some things that other people don't find humor in. And even though there are moments to take scripture really seriously, I think God invites you into scripture to giggle a little bit as well. And some of you remember in Acts 19, Paul has been doing some amazing things in Ephesus. Right? He is doing ministry. And in this particular place, as he's doing ministry and he's doing miracles and people are getting saved, there are seven sons of a Jewish high priest. Do you remember these seven sons? There's seven of them. So their last name was Arian and Ben Lin. (laughs) They, They just had their twins. They have seven kids. It's an inside joke for those of you who don't know. This is a big family, but it's a family that grew up in religion. Now notice, obviously, based off of the context of what we're about to read here out of Acts 19, religion doesn't have power, friends. There is no I do A 
and God will do B. He doesn't enter into contracts. He enters into a covenant. So these seven sons who grew up in religion have a Jewish high priest. They see what Paul has been doing, and they come across an individual with an evil spirit in them, and these seven sons surround him, and they try to cast out this demon out of this man. And do you remember what the demon says through the man to the sons? I know Jesus, and I know Paul. I don't know who you are. And here's the funny part. And the man whom was the evil, who had the evil spirit, left on them, mastered them, overpowered them, and then they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You can laugh. I mean, this is comical. You can't, can, you, can you not help see it? They've got confidence. They think they're king. They think they've got power. They think they can ma- manipulate God's power. So they surround this man to try to do something good, and the man says, you have no power, you have no authority, because ultimately you have not given your life to Jesus. You have nothing. And so he pounces on them. That's the language. He beat the snot out of them. And the fight was so violent and so bloody, and they were so humiliated and so beaten, they ran out of that house naked. It doesn't get more shameful than that, does it? And then it goes on and it says this, after that happened, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They started to confess the ways that they were not worshiping God correctly. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you see what happened in the early church? They recognized power comes by making Jesus the authority and king of my life. And the result was people came and said, listen, man, I've been doing yoga and I've been worshiping yoga gods. I'm done with that. I got this weird satanic book about it. I'm going to throw that on the pile. You have people who go, oh, I used to worship the trees. I used to worship this. I used to worship that. We worship all kinds of false gods even in our culture today. And they grabbed all of those books, it said, put them into a pile, and they decided to count them of their worth, 50,000 pieces of silver. How much silver did Judas betray Jesus for? 30. This is how you know the power of the gospel has infiltrated the church and infiltrated a, a community of people who desperately need Jesus. You burn your false gods, you torch them, you get rid of them, you run from them, and you have nothing to do with them ever again. Because those gods entrap you. Those gods will lead you to wickedness and deceit. Those gods will lead you to suicidal thoughts. Those guys will lead you. Those gods will lead you to isolation and loneliness. They will lead you further into sin, further into darkness. And Jesus is communicating on this Palm Sunday, come to me as king and I will liberate you. Now is time for this invitation. And it is an invitation. How do I know that? Well, if you look in your Bible again, you, you, you have to just notice a few little things. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is segmented. It's off to the side. It should be at least in your Bible. It, it seems to be taking up more room than it actually should because it's only four lines long. And the reason that it is set apart this way is to let us know that what Jesus is doing is he's quoting part of Zechariah chapter 9. And what is lost on us sometimes, just so you're aware, that when a rabbi taught, he would often just quote a particular portion of Scripture. 
And everyone knew, especially the Jews, the Jews knew that by quoting that particular scripture, he was actually quoting the whole. So oftentimes when we get just a little segment like this, it's Jesus' way of saying, even to you today, yes, read your Bible, go back and read the whole chapter, which we're not going to do. We don't have time for that. But let me read to you the entirety of Zechariah 9. Some of this is here and some of it is not. And listen to what it, what it says in this passage. Rejoice greatly. Shout in triumph. Daughter of Jerusalem, shout in triumph. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous. He is victorious, humble, riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey. He goes on and says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. Do you hear that? The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. There's the invitation. The humble king is quoting Zechariah 9 to say, I am coming to proclaim to you no longer war in this world, but peace. Jesus is declaring that I can remove from you this feeling of battle in the world against, against Satan, this battle that you feel you may be losing. Jesus is victorious over. And it goes on to say his dominion will extend from sea to sea. He's quoting scripture to let us know that he is inviting us into this relationship with him. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're making much of this week. We have posters out front. We've got little cards for Easter. We want you to hand them out. More than anything, we want you to recognize that our humble, powerful king hears your prayers. And when you pray for people's salvation, guess what happens? People get saved. Do you know what kind of people get saved? The ones that you don't think will be saved. If you're here this morning, I want to warn you that if you're here this morning and you don't believe upon Jesus Christ, be forewarned that if you keep coming, you may be saved. Do you know that? Be forewarned that Jesus is going to get in your life and say, you know that thing that you think is so life-giving? I'm going to have you throw it in the trash. And then I'm going to give you something better. Christ wants to give you more of himself. What do you want from me? I want to see. I want to see. And then here's the transformation piece. Where do I get the transformation piece? It's hidden within the declaration of Hosanna, but more so it's hidden in the palm leaves before you. The palm leaves mean something. There are two places I want to take you. Uh, Psalm 96.10 and Isaiah 55. I'll quote them in brevity because we need to move on here and close in just a few moments. But listen to what Psalm 96.10 says of these branches, of these palms. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. There's his kingship. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Do you hear it? Like, like the psalmist is, is making a crescendo of God's creation, that God's creation, the heavens will be glad, the earth will rejoice, the sea will roar, everything in it will exult. 
Then it says, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. Do you hear it? He's literally saying in the Psalms, the trees, the palms themselves will sing. They're speaking of heaven. Isaiah 55, 12, for you shall go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. That's the invitation. The mountains and the hills of Jerusalem before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. He's giving us a picture of heaven. Now, I just want you to imagine something here because as Jesus enters into Jerusalem to die, it's a picture of him also letting us know that we will enter into the new Jerusalem and live forever in peace. And when we enter into the new Jerusalem forever in peace, not to die on a cross as he did, but the new Jerusalem to rejoice and to sing and to eat and to celebrate and to enjoy each other's company, he gives us a picture of what heaven will be like. And one of those pictures is the trees sing and the trees clap their branches. Wow. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to have new senses. We're going to be able to see things we never got to see before. We're going to smell things that we didn't know that we could smell, and we're going to be able to feel things we didn't know that we could feel. Our senses will be expanded. I have no idea how many colors there are, but I'm sure on this planet we're limited. I'm colorblind. I'm missing all kinds of rods and cones. I can't wait to finally see color the way he intended it. Can you imagine that? That it tells us Paul, John, they all grasp in Scripture to describe what this new Jerusalem will be like, streets of gold, heavens, and, and the singing and the angels and the dinner table that is set before us. He says, when you enter into heaven, everything's going to be new. Everything's going to be different. Everything's going to sing. Everything's going to exult. That will be the transformation of nature. And my friends, if Jesus can cause trees to sing and branches to clap, what in the world is he going to do with you? You have to just, in your mind, recognize that Jesus is inviting you into something completely different than what you've ever experienced. And that it's totally worth it. To live this life in sacrifice, to live this life in service, knowing that our King has redeemed us and He's fought the battle and He's won the battle. We just walk in faith today, giving more of ourselves every day that we possibly can. And then one day, Jesus and Jesus alone will march us into the new Jerusalem. And one day, Jesus is returning. And Revelations tells us that when he returns, there will be a sword in his mouth, and he will be white riding a big, large, white horse. Do you want to be invited into peace today? Say yes to the Lord. Give more of yourself to him. Congregation, friends of faith, give more of your life to God today. And I promise you, no one who's ever done that has ever said, oops, I regret it. Not one. We rejoice in this king. And we rejoice in just a week's time. We get to celebrate that he is not dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have invited us into this relationship that can transform us, Lord. May we see that we truly are not in control, you're in control. May we see, Lord, that we cannot be in between, that in our hearts we must have a desire to want to give you everything. Lord, I'm sure there are individuals here this morning and they know exactly who they are. They're swimming a little bit in the world, a little bit in the world's ways and a little bit in your ways and I know that they can feel it within themselves. They're torn in two. You 
And you alone teach us that we cannot serve two masters, that we will love one and we will hate the other. Today, Lord, I pray that none of us here will say that we would hate you, but rather that we will crown you because you are king. So, Lord, may we give you that control. May we not be in, be in between. And may we see for all the rest of us here that maybe don't know you, you are inviting us in. Lord, whatever we're like today, we may feel like dead, dry bones. But today, you want to breathe life into your people. And I pray that you would do that today. For today is the day of salvation. And we trust you for these things, Lord. You are God. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. Family, let's stand together.